Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums play an important role in our lives. Nearly every good-sized city has at least one museum. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums are not only important places to display artifacts and teach us, they also contribute to the economic development of the areas where they're located. Now, here is your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol, and you're listening to The Museum Life. I think this is going to be a really, really important show for us all to uh uh, take advantage of uh, today, and I'm thrilled to be able to present it to you. We've been talking about how museums can be responsive to their communities, and I think that there is no greater issue right now uh, and no greater need to respond than museums responding to the larger global crisis of global warming, uh, changes in climate, and uh, teaching us how we can live more sustainably in our environment. I think museums have a huge role to play in this arena, and so does my very special guest, Sarah Sutton Brophy. Sarah is a uh, museum consultant based in Maryland. She has uh, earned a great career as a grant writer and strategic thinker. And most recently, she has carved out for her a very important niche in this idea of greening uh, of museums. She is an author, she is a blogger, and she is just a great thinker. And I am pleased to have her on the show today. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Carol. I'm delighted to be here. Appreciate it. Sarah, you've shared with me, and I'd like you to share with our listeners your personal and professional green journey, how you've moved from helping museums be financially sustainable to becoming environmentally sustainable. Well, a great deal of my work at the beginning of my independent career was writing grant applications, doing grant planning for museums and historic sites. And the common denominator was always, how do I find ways to come up with money for museums to do the very cool projects they're interested in doing, whether it's an art exhibit, whether it's a new building installation, whether it's to acquire new objects. It was my job to figure out how to find money to do those wonderful things. And for a number of years, that was enough for me. Uh, but about eight years ago, it seemed to me that if I was going to go ahead and preach to my clients that the import, the value of money was to achieve more than one goal at a time. That's how you improved your impact. You needed to not just buy that artwork, but conserve it and make sure it was available to the public. So the most competitive grant application was the one that was going to solve more than one problem. And when I was asked to help out the gal who became my co-author, Elizabeth Wiley, by preparing a grant application for planning work around environmental sustainability for one of her clients, it seemed to me that this was perhaps the best possible way I could help my museum clients do great work with grant money. And that was sort of the aha moment. And it transferred now to 
an entire focus on grant work and sustainability work that helps museums do incredibly important work in their local communities and the nation and the global community. Well, that's that's great, uh, Sarah. That's that. I think that is a very logical transition to make, and a very important point for us all to remember that as uh, museum professionals, we always need to be looking beyond the immediate. And while it's easy to you know, work through the paradigm of event or exhibit or program, we also always need to be looking at its sustainability. And as, as you say, there is nothing more important in terms of sustainability than our overall planet's sustainability. We often use the term greening. I know I, I do as sort of a shorthand for sustainability. It's fewer syllables. But could, what is really greening? Is it just the building? Is it just our attitude? What, what, how do you define greening? Well, my work started off as reducing our a museum's impact, negative impact on their environment and reducing cost to the institution. So cut back on materials use, cut back on energy use, uh, cut back on waste from events. It was all about cutting back and reducing impact. And now I believe that the field of, let's say, greening, whether it's in museums or in uh, outside of the museum field, has progressed significantly past that. It's not just reducing our impact, it's improving the situation. So when I'm working with a museum or talking with colleagues about what they do at their museum, we all start with how do we reduce energy, reduce waste, reduce materials. But then we pretty quickly graduate to our program and that's what I call the fourth P of environmental sustainability. They're the first three P's that people know are people, planet, and profit. Making sure that the green work you do is good for people, it's healthy for them and makes them happy and work well. Um, that it's good for the planet, reduces impact, and it either helps or at least doesn't hurt your bottom line. But I add a fourth P to that of how does that support our program work, whether it's saving energy um, in order to have more money to support collections care or it's doing environmental programming, uh, doing public programming, public education around environmental sustainability. And since the environment is a system, it makes an awful lot of sense to me to think about greening at a museum as a system-wide approach, not just in the building not just the landscape, not just the office, but the whole system, everything you do, where can we make positive changes? That's very, very interesting, looking at the museum as a, as, as a, a system. Uh, I suppose there are some checks and balances there as well. Well, and a well-behaved system, a self-managing system, does regulate that way. And so it's important if we're a museum professional saying, okay, we're going, it's all about green, everything we're going to do now will be environmentally sustainable. Well, not everything that's environmentally sustainable, let's say at Zoo A, is going to be appropriate at Museum B. And each system operates in its local environment, so 
the decisions you make have to be based on the context of your particular institution and the work you do. And that starts to provide some parameters for making green choices. I just I want to stay with this systems uh, analogy a, a little little bit further if if you don't mind. Um, what makes uh, a uh, a building system, for instance, what makes that green? You can look at it at least two ways. The first one is energy. So how how does it use energy and does it use it efficiently? And the other one is the materials that are in it. So let's let's just tackle those two because that that would be enough for anyone to take on. Uh, so the energy system, the mantra is you start with your building envelope in order to make sure that your floor, your walls, your ceiling, your windows, your vents, any access point uh, is appropriately built and maintained so it doesn't let in or out cold or hot air that you've conditioned, doesn't let in moisture or water that will interfere with um, the balance of the climate inside the building. Uh, But you also look at how much you use inside that building. So let's say uh, you had a board member who said, we're going to become a green energy uh, organization. We're going to switch to solar power and I've got the money to install your solar system. Let's just go ahead. The responsible thing is to look at your entire building, make sure the envelope is appropriately sealed, and then look at how you use the building and how you can cut back on energy use appropriately before you build your solar power system. Otherwise, you'd be building too big a solar power system, and that's not necessarily appropriate at your location. So that's one example of how to consider your system, your whole building as a system. Oh, I said materials. If we thought about materials as well, uh, let's say you're going to do a reconstruction uh, and expansion project and you think about the materials systems that go into this. It's not just what materials do you choose to put into your building, but it's where do the materials come from? How were they harvested or collected, manufactured? And then how efficiently can we choose those materials and install them on the property and then uh, get rid of the waste or any leftovers of the materials that you've put into that building. So it makes the whole thing a cycle and a system, not just a design picture on the wall that we're going to design an expansion that looks like XYZ. That's very helpful. I, I think that that's very good information and a good way for museums to start to look at look at this. And and so I, I guess then my next question really is a little obvious, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is, so it sounds as if greening is good for all museum types, not just those that maybe focus on uh, the topic of greening in a in as as a as a content area like a science center. Right, absolutely, hands down. I believe that this applies to all types of museums, and it applies to zoos and aquariums and historic sites and public parks and all of those sorts of cultural and educational institutions. This is an obvious business system for them. Now, not all museum folks thought that uh, or do yet, but it's definitely a change in the field. And part of that is 
because often people don't see a direct connection between environmentally environmental sustainability and the institutional mission. We are all so well trained as professionals to check mission first before we make any decisions. And if environmental sustainability to you only means of ecosystems as in the frogs in the pond outside or uh, the science of carbon cycles and you're an art museum or a history museum, you might not see a direct connection. So you can look at it from one of those four P approaches, people, planet, profit, program, and see where you have an intersection. And if you're assuming the only only intersection is program, then only the science uh, museums and nature centers would take this up. But if you think about from a profit point of view or a people, a public health point of view, you can see an obvious connection. The public health point of view is if we use um, all sorts of chemicals in our interior finishes for our exhibits or in the materials we use for storing our collections, then the people who work in those areas, the people who visit in those areas will have an exposure to unhealthy chemicals, just the way our special objects are. So from that point of view, a health point of view for objects and people, environmentally sustainable approaches make all kinds of mission sense for your institution, whether it's a whether you have a, an art collection or a history collection or a scientific instrument collection. Uh, and then if you think about it from a profit point of view, what do we spend the most money on in our institutions? After staff members, it's probably your energy system. And if you can find even some basic ways to back, cut back on cost on energy, you now have more money to plow into whatever program, whatever mission issue is most important to you. So it becomes a, a fantastic tool and resource for doing more of what you want to do if you practice some of these new skills that are becoming a little more widespread and much more available to people in all sorts of professions and now certainly to museums. That, you know, Sarah, you raise a really important point uh, that museums obviously aren't working in isolation. And many, many industries uh, and uh, corporations and governments and government agencies are really getting uh, on the green bandwagon, if you will. Uh, I, I am pleased every time I walk into an, an airport, which I happen to do a lot uh, across the country, and I see uh, lots of recycling bins, and I see statements in the restrooms about, you know, cleaning, cleaning water water and low flush toilets and it seems as if this is something that everybody is talking about uh, so it's so museums are just in many ways responding yeah, absolutely the awareness level is significantly uh, advanced uh, when Elizabeth and I started writing the green museum book um, and articles for museum in 05. So let's say we started in 05 and then the book came out in 08. When we started our work, we would have to comb all of our resources to find a reference in the newspaper or online uh, about environmentally sustainable practices. We, we would only come across one in a week. And by the time it was printed, it was going to, uh, by the time the book came out, it was going to, um, 
occur to us maybe once once every single day, and now it's an unlimited amount. Wow, wow. Are there also uh, federal regulations that are uh, uh, be that museums will soon fall under related to uh, greening and sustainability? Absolutely. I, the public awareness is to a point that uh, if the fi- Fortune 500 companies are doing this because it makes sense for profit and uh, public support, the federal government is figuring out some of that stuff as well, and they're responding to a public that wants to know about more um, sustainable practices. And I said federal government, but let me just say government with a small g. So for a museum operator listening now, what are the things that are going to become regulated and will impact them, will affect them? You're ha- you need to think about water. You need to think about waste removal. And you um, need to think about site, your entire site management. You are going to be asked to manage all of your water on your site. So the rain that falls on your property needs to be taken care of on your property Say within the next few years, just assume it's going to happen. Start planning now. They're going to ask you to live within energy limits, and they're going to ask you to live within waste limits. Uh, And my point about the waste limits now, we've got a number of places around the country where there are pilot fees, payments in lieu of taxes that are being requested by local governments of nonprofits and one of those issues is you're not paying, paying any taxes, but you're using municipal resources. Sometimes that municipal resource might be waste removal if you're not paying separately for it to be removed privately. If you can demonstrate how much less waste you ask to be removed or to be recycled from your property or water for that fact, water that runs through the municipal system. If you can show how much you've cut back, you have an argument against a pilot fee request because you've shown how much you've reduced your impact on your community and your municipality. So I do believe that those – if you look to California and the types of regulations they have on new construction for – Energy requirements, if you think about insulation for new additions, if you think about footprint on your property, they're going to start to be pretty significant. It's just, it's not just wetlands impact anymore. It's everything. That's, that is very, uh, chilling and it really brings the, <laughs> no, but it, but it, but it brings the reality, uh, uh, back to us as, as, uh, museum practitioners and as, as museum, uh, um, makers. Uh, we're going to take a break right now, uh, and when we return, we're going to be talking more with Sarah about the issues of greening in museums. Remember, you can always uh, drop me a line at carol.bossard at verizon.net. Uh, you can, if you miss this show right now or want to share it, you can always listen to it at uh, my, on my website at carolbossardservices.com, and we'll be back in in just a minute with Sarah Sutton Brophy. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll free right now at 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Uh, I'm so glad that you've returned. I'm here today with Sarah Sutton Brophy. We're talking about the greening of museums. And before we get back to this very fascinating conversation, I wanted to let all of our listeners know, know that Sarah is the author of several books and is also a fantastic blogger. So if you're interested in uh, learning more about this topic after our show and, and also uh, getting more in information for your museum, of course, you can always contact Sarah direct, directly at sarah at bmuse.net. That's B-M-U-S-E dot net. Uh, she's also on Twitter as at Green Museum. She writes a wonderful blog. I recommend it to all of you called The Sustainable Museum. And you can also purchase several of her books, The Green Museum, A Primer on Environmental Practice uh, through Altamira Bookstores, as also at Altamira is uh, your Is Your Museum Grant Ready? Assessing Your Museum's Ability to Attract Grants, which, as we've just learned, is important uh, for sustainability in, a, in a, the broadest sense. And also a fascinating read. I highly recommend it. The Green Nonprofit, The First 52 Weeks of Your Green Journey, which is available at charitychannel.com. Uh, I'll repeat those uh, some of that information later on in the show because I know that this is such a broad topic and some of you may be feeling as I do right now, which is sort of like, oh my, where do I even begin? And we'll get into that a little bit more later in the show. Sarah, um, welcome back. At our break, we were talking, you know, right before our break, we, you were talking about some of the regulations that are going to soon, if not they already have, affected museums in terms of, of our overall footprint, uh, the waste we produce. And you were mentioning to me something about energy, just overall energy uh, consumption uh, and the importance of energy independence. Could you uh, share a little bit more with our listeners on that topic? I will. Thank you. This is 
sort of the next step beyond managing all of your storm water on site? Eventually, that will also include folks, just so you're ready, that'll include managing a lot of your wastewater on site. Uh, but also, take the next step and think about energy and energy independence for your own institution. Uh, some of you, especially the ones that are in large cities and might have older infrastructure in an older building, you might be part of a district energy system where, let's say, in the city of Baltimore, um, there's a provider for uh, steam energy, and it's piped into each of the buildings. That's called a district energy approach, and that's getting a new lease on life by uh, or parts of municipalities, uh, new development areas, creating their own energy system source, self-contained uh, and pretty independent from the rest of the energy universe. I think that's a critical safeguard for your institution's long-term health, is beginning to understand how you can work towards control of your own energy source. So that means uh, if you have an opportunity to do small-scale wind and small-scale solar, you've significantly reduced your energy demand footprint, and maybe you're working with others in your community to have uh, what they might call a solar garden, which is a uh, like a solar farm, it's a it's a an array of solar panels producing electric energy for that particular neighborhood. That gives you an independence so that, say, you're living in the Northeast right now and you've just had a horrendous ice storm and the trees are down and all the power distribution is gone for entire areas. You have a smaller piece of property that needs to be repaired and brought back up and running in order to take care of your collection. So thinking about how you can be more energy independent is really important for your long-time security, and it's becoming technically achievable. That That's fascinating. Uh, you know, with everything you've told me so far, uh, I'm, I'm a real convert. Uh, I, I can't imagine what, but I'm sure there are, uh, barriers that that you face when you go into a, a museum or or if you're you're doing a program uh, are there people out there in your audience who are going yeah yeah right uh, you know maybe that's not for me right now I mean what are what are some of the barriers that you've encountered well there are a lot and uh, I've had to overcome them in myself so uh, I have people who assume that I was perhaps born green or <laughs> that everything I do in my life is entirely green. But I, I confess up front that I take long showers. Now, if I lived in California, I'm sure I would not be a person who took long showers. But at the moment, that's one of my non-green behaviors. But each of us has some non-green behaviors or some anxieties or concerns about sustainable practices that get in the way of making progress. And the first thing I say is just let go of the guilt. Let go of the guilt because it interferes with any progress. Nobody goes all green yet. No one goes green all at once. Uh, the stuff about it being a journey, seriously, it's really, really, really a journey. And we should give ourselves credit for the steps that we take. But it is an evolution uh, and you have to step onto the path at some point. And I encourage anyone who's anxious about it or doesn't know where to choose to start to just pick a spot 
and move forward from there. And one of the easiest ways to pick a spot is to look at a problem in your institution or an excess. I, I look at gaps and overages. So where you don't have enough of something or where you have too much of something is often a good way to solve a problem and become more sustainable. Now, the obvious too much of something is if you have too much garbage. So recycling is one way to reduce the amount of garbage you have. Consumption, how much you bring into the building and then use part of and then throw away. If you can reduce your consumption, you can reduce the garbage that you have. Repurposing materials that you have when you're done with that excellent, cool exhibit. The Historical Society down the way, the brand new museum over around the corner is probably hungry for some of that exhibit furniture that you don't have space to store or a way to reuse yourself. Find a way to distribute that so that there's less garbage. And you'd be surprised how one or two little actions, well, they work. They make you feel good. They give you a little boost of encouragement and your brain. We museum folks are creative, smart people. We like a challenge. And your brain gets a little boost about how you solve that problem. And suddenly you're looking for the next problem to solve. And you take that next green step and you're moving along on your green journey. And someone in your office, somebody in your local museum group, somebody who's at the museum conference you go to, they notice what you did. And they take encouragement or example from that, and they try it at home. And all of a sudden, you'll find one day, as you look back over your shoulder, that there are a bunch of people coming along with you who are making those green changes. And after we get a little bit of that practice in, then it makes it a lot easier to start taking on bigger projects and planning. So the short answer is you don't have to do anything difficult, expansive, or complicated. Just start where you are. That's a lesson we've all learned about educating our public. Start where the learner is and work from there and give yourself credit from op for opening your mind to possibilities and stepping forward. And I had sort of a, a struggle earlier before the break uh, when you had said that uh, some of my thoughts about future restrictions was sort of chilling. And I completely understand. You're right. It is chilling. And to somebody with green practice – that is just a really cool opportunity for museums to do new and important things for their community. So I see all of this as a continuation of good museum work. We are smart, creative people. We can solve this problem, and we can help the world around us do it at the same time. Thank you, Sarah. That's that. <laughs> Thank you. That's That really is very, very inspiring. But I'll tell you something that that I that I hear. Well, I hear two things in my my own practice. One, um, because I am on the exhibit development side of things, uh, I sit on big planning teams that that help museums develop the new new big exhibit or renovate their facility uh, or even plan and plan a new museum and. Everyone is really excited at the very beginning of the project. Yes, this is going to be our very first green exhibit, and we're going to have all new green materials, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that until the budgets come in. 
And then everyone says, oh, my goodness, I never knew those materials were more expensive. And here we have all of these great ideas. And now we won't be able to do them because of the budget. You know, the first thing that always gets cut are those those new green materials. And so I'm wondering how, you know, uh, uh, how how do how can we as creative museum people start thinking about that in a way so that that isn't the first thing that gets cut? Mm -hmm. Well, because it's part of a system, there are a bunch of ways to tackle the problem. And that approach probably depends upon the museum group that you're working with. And since it's hypothetical, I sort of have to guess and give you some options of what might be ways to trigger a different approach in ending up with a green project instead of one where the green got cut. And if you were to tackle this as a building design project, you would have an integrated design team. And probably you have a pretty integrated design team for your exhibit as well. You've got the preparators, you've got the educators, you've got the designers, you've got the uh, people who are going to do the graphic design, you've got the director of the museum who's worried about the message and the impression. So you've got an integrated group there. Someone in the group, if not everyone, needs to be representing the green approach. And from the beginning, all of those green materials and their costs and their intent and their contribution to the overall goal need to be valued equally with the other aspects. And if green is not of equal value, then it will be the first thing to be cut. To say that it's cut only because it's most expensive really is a, a false statement. If you're letting it go because it's the most expensive, but you're not letting another expensive issue uh, concept be cut, then really you're sort of discriminating against the green aspect. So what's the goal of your particular project and what's the goal of your institution? If green matters, then it gets factored in and becomes part of the cost of doing business. Now, let's, now a lot of you can hear that and say, yes, okay, it's the cost of doing business, but I can't spend more on green if it ever costs more. Well, let's look at that in two ways. It doesn't always cost more. That's an assumption that we have to be careful to examine each time we hear it. Uh, if you buy less of something, it costs less. If you buy more of something, it costs more. Sometimes a greener choice for a more energy efficient use of the of lighting will cost you less over the cost of the over the life of the exhibit. So that's a life cycle cost for the exhibit. If that first cost bothers you and you cut on first cost, you're cutting based on short-term view instead of a long-term view of managing that um, entire project. So let's say to be green, you thought maybe you'd give up all the adhesives and instead you would bolt everything together. And the labor costs for putting together seem larger. If you were to then change your mind based on that first cost and you didn't factor in what the cost of the waste removal of all those glued pieces are, then you'd come up, your equation would be off. You wouldn't have considered the whole life cycle cost. So to back up and 
uh, give you a shorter answer. If there's an integrated design team that considers the full cost of the project and the first goal of the project, those green choices become more integral to your whole idea and they survive longer in the project. That's really important. Uh, uh, there was a lot there. Let me let me just repeat back to you a couple of things that that occurred to me, and I am uh, I, and I can immediately put these into my practice. So that's very helpful. One is, you know, in, in, as you say, as in, in integrated design teams, we always have advocates. We have, you know, the advocate, everyone's a visitor advocate, but we have advocate for the collections. We have an advocate, someone who's, who's concerned about the, the, the mission and the message and, and the objects and the, and the education. And we need to add an, an advocate for greening. Uh, and perhaps after break, we can talk a little bit more about how, how museums can create those advocates. But that's something really important that I heard. And the other really important thing is uh, to be looking downstream, to be looking at those long, oh, you know, those long-term life cycle costs. And while perhaps a couple of years ago, it didn't cost the museum that much to remove all those uh, painted materials or glue stuck materials it it does now and it's going to uh, cost even more in the future and that those are considerations that need to be incorporated into even the capital budgets that that uh, that we we develop for some of these project specific uh, uh, activities of yep. the museum and it, it's also worth considering that you don't oh I'm sorry no, no, you're good. Uh, it's also worth considering that um, that you don't have to, like I said, go all green. You can test a a green part of your next exhibit. Let's say just take on finishes or just take on substrate and see what green aspects work. And if they um, if they work, then keep them for the next one. You don't have to do it all at once. That's really good, uh, and let's let's all keep that one in mind, along with Sarah's other admonition, which is just let go of the guilt. Uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit of the nuts and bolts of how you and your institution can go green. Remember, you can reach me anytime at carol.bossert at verizon.net. You can also listen to this show and any others you may have missed on my website, carolbossertservices.com. When we return, we're going to continue talking with Sarah Sutton Brophy. Back in a minute. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. Today we're talking about greening the museum with Sarah Sutton Brophy. I want to remind all of all of my listeners that this is only the beginning of this green conversation. And if you, as I, have picked up the bug, uh, then please, please, please continue to reach out to Sarah. Uh, she's a great consultant. She'll help you get started. You can reach her at bmuse.net. Uh, direct email is Sarah at bmuse. That's b m u s e dot net. Also, pick up one of her books. Pick up all of her books. Uh, the Green Museum: A Primer on Environmental Practice, available through Altamira, and the Green Nonprofit: The First Fifty Two Weeks of Your Green Journey. You're not alone. That's not part of the title. I just think that that's nice to know uh and that is available through charitychannel.com and with that sarah welcome back uh this has been really really exciting and i i bet some of my listeners just like you are going to be uh thinking about well this is all great how do i get uh how do how do i get started I wanted to just talk a little bit about some of the other green practices. Uh, you know, we have things that we can do in terms of recycling. We can have things that we can do in terms of energy. We can all, we have lots of activities that are available to us, including, uh, programming. And now we've talked a little bit about how science museums and natural history museums are quite natural in, uh, uh, places to provide programming for uh, issues of, of uh, carbon footprint and climate change. But it occurs to me as well that art museums and history museums are also available uh, to do this kind of programming. Uh, one of the things uh, that uh, we can use through history is looking at uh, historical organization, uh, his, uh, the environment through time. 
and how that uh, has given us an opportunity to uh, understand our environment and how people relate to that environment and how that has that has changed. And of course, art museums have so much to offer through their collections. Uh, so many artists have been inspired by the environment, inspired uh, and uh, reacted against or for industrialization and how that has has affected the environment uh, as well. I'm wondering, uh, one of the uh, one of the topics that uh, Sarah talks about in her book uh, is something that she calls green uh, green washing. Uh, the idea that once in a while we, there are things uh, companies talking about greening that in fact aren't necessarily uh, so green. Uh, they. And I think we have to, to watch out for those. An example of a green washing, which of course is adapted from whitewashing, means exaggerating green properties or arbitrarily selecting a green aspect and, and uh, not being able to uh, focus on, on the uh, non-green aspects of that. Uh, that, I think, was a good example that Sarah made when she was talking about uh, uh, just waste removal uh, items as well. So in our last few minutes, let's talk a little bit about how a museum gets started. There are a few ways to look at it. depends upon what's most comfortable for your institution, but the, there are three ways to start. You might have some sort of audit. You might get somebody's checklist. Or you might just make comparisons to your colleagues. Let me give you examples of each of those. So an audit might be an energy audit provided by your local utility person or somebody that you hired in order to come and look at your energy consumption and then the systems in your building and the structure of your building and how it manages energy. And they'll give you all sorts of tips of where to get started in order to reduce your energy costs. But another kind of audit is a staff practices audit where somebody who knows about energy efficiency and organizational behavior can come and walk through a workday with you, walk through your building and assess your habitual practices and help you see how you could come up with energy reducing approaches or material use reducing approaches that might change and make you more efficient. If you want to think about a checklist approach, I'm definitely a checklist person. I have, um, I'm what they call a lead accredited professional. So from the U.S. Green Building Council, you can study to, for the lead program, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, and become certified in being able to support people who are trying to certify their buildings. And so you can use the lead checklist, whether or not you want to actually certify your building, you can use the lead checklist to think about how you might tackle sustainability at your institution. You can also use um, checklists like uh, for the Green Globes approach, which is gaining momentum definitely in uh, helping to be a standard for greening buildings. So the Green Glo Globes program and the Living Building program all have guidelines that you can use to start of thinking about how you would go about uh, becoming more green. 
and then you can make comparisons. You can make energy to energy comparisons if you use the uh, Environmental Protection Agency's free program called Energy Star uh, Energy Portfolio Managers. It's part of the Energy Star program, and Portfolio Manager is the free uh, online database for recording your energy consumption and comparing it with like buildings. The problem is there aren't a whole lot of like buildings out there for our museum, zoos, gardens, and aquariums. So uh, the EPA is actually working with um, the AAM Professional Interest Committee, the professional network, Pick Green, to come up with a museum standard in the portfolio manager. And if you would like to create, to support change within the field about energy management and greening, if you were to participate in this, it would be a huge boon. We need enough museums to participate that we have a database to use for benchmarking. And that's a free one that you can participate in. And then lastly, for comparisons, look at uh, examples such at as at AZA, the Association for Zoos and Aquariums, they have an annual award program. And you can look at the winners and see what other folks are doing and think about how that applies to you. And this year, the Professional Network for Green at AAM is going to launch its first museum, Green Museum Award. And that's an excellent way to start thinking about how you match up with others and how there might be practices that your colleagues use that make sense at your institution. Wow, they're, 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 those are all wonderful options. Would you just repeat there? Uh, so, so there are, there are benchmarks, there are uh, comparisons, and what was the other one you said? I, I used audit. Audit. Checklist. Checklist. And comparison. Yeah, uh, and that energy uh, benchmarking is part of the comparison category. Okay. And when you think about benchmarking, there's an organization called IAMFA, the International Association of Facility Managers, something, IAMFA, I-A-M-F-A, uh, and they do an annual museum benchmarking, uh, which uh, is a little expensive to participate in, and the information isn't shared publicly, but I'm hoping we can find a way in which to leverage that for the field in order to move us all forward. But if you're part of a larger institution uh, that might have the funds for participating in that benchmarking, I, I think that's an important way to go as well. All really good information, Sarah. We're almost uh, we're almost to close. We still have a, a, a few minutes. I I wanted, but I wanted to give you time to answer uh, answer for our listeners sort of your um, something you and I have talked about uh, offline, and that is sort of your aha moment. You know, we've talked a little bit about how how we can all put our toe in the water uh, in greening and that that we, it starts on our green journey. But but what what was was your moment where you said, oh, my gosh, this is really something I want to commit my 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 personal time and my career to. Well, I believe that to whom much is given, much is expected. And that means the talented, uh, creative people who are, who are museum professionals and to this marvelous museum field that we're a part of. We are charitable institutions with a charge to educate and benefit the public. 
I just can't see a, a better way for us to improve our communities and support our the environment around us that we live and work in, the natural, human, and economic environment that we are a part of, than to advance understanding of human impact on the environment and ways in which that we can reverse that impact. We we talked at the beginning it's important to reduce impact, but we've gone way beyond reducing impact. We're now to a point where we have to we have to heal the earth. We have to find ways to make our environments better for us and for whatever futures we hope for. And museums are some of the best equipped institutions to not only do the research and test the opportunities, but to magnify that impact by sharing that with the public and inspiring them to take action as well. Well, I, this has been an inspiring conversation, Sarah. Uh, I, I think that the take-home message for all of us is whether it is explicit in your mission, uh, it is implicit in your mission as an educational institution that is committed to preserving, educating, and all those other, other active activities that we do within our institutions. Uh, sustainability and green is underlying all of that, and it behooves all of us to continue uh, with this work, both professionally and personally. Uh, Sarah, this has been uh, just just an amazing conversation. If you, um, my listeners, are feeling that you want to get started in this area, I really encourage you to continue uh, listening to Sarah on her blog, Sustainable Museums, contacting her at bmuse.net, getting her book, The Green Museum, A Primer on Environmental Practice uh, through Altamira, and The Green Nonprofit, The First 52 Weeks of Your Green Journey. Uh, you've, you, of course, can always reach me, and I can put you in contact with Sarah at carol.bossard at verizon.net. If you want to share this program with others, uh, just go to carolbossertservices.com. You can listen to this program, and you can also download it on the Voice America website. It has been a true pleasure, Sarah. Thank you so much, and we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to The Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With the weekend coming up, why not plan a trip to your favorite museum or one you've never been to? Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out a